Well, good morning. I'm Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here. And Brad has been going through the Gospel of Mark and asked if I would take this passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. We'll read verses 18 to 27. It's also in your bulletin. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Most people assume that there is something beyond this reality, that there is life, some type of life, after death. But can you imagine what it would be like to live believing that this is all that there is, that there is nothing beyond here? No hell, no judgment, no heaven, no purgatory, no reincarnation. The moment that you take your final breath, that's it. Nothing beyond that. That would mean that the only justice that is possible is in this world. That if you're doing any suffering, if you're going through any suffering, it means absolutely nothing beyond this moment. That the only joy or beauty that we have is right here, right now. I think Shakespeare's Macbeth, speaking to the messenger, understands it best when he says all of our yesterdays are just candles uh, to show our fellow fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets on the stage until his hour is up. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The idea of a closed universe, that there is nothing beyond our lives here with no eternal consequences, that idea is brilliantly put into literature by people like Franz Kafka, uh, the existentialists Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. But they kind of are only following a brilliant Chinese writer, the most brilliant Chinese writer of the 20th century, a man named Lu Xun who wrote in around 1920, 
This is what the world is like. Pretend that you are in a house made out of iron and there are no windows, there are no doors, there's no air getting in or going out. You are in an iron cage, in an iron house. And in that iron house, there's a whole bunch of people sleeping. And you happen to wake up. And you find out that... um, we're running out of air in here and there's no way out. Lushan says, you know, the best thing to do is to not wake up everybody in the house and let them know we're all dying. Just let them sleep and let them die in peace. In the same way, it's best not to let people know how absurd life is if there's nothing beyond this life. Let them walk through this life asleep, numbed by pleasures, entertainment, and moment of joy. In Jesus' day, there was a religious party that followed him around called the Sadducees. They were the liberal part of the church of the day. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but that was it. They were the economic elite. It's very interesting that usually it's the economic elite, the liberal that don't believe in anything beyond this life. But they did not believe that there was anything beyond this life. And so to show how absurd it is to think that there's anything beyond this life, they bring him a question. They're going to take this country bumpkin and they're going to show that he is nothing more than a carpenter. And so they tell this absurd story that there's a woman who has a husband. And if you read the last chapters of Deuteronomy, you'll find that there's a law that says that if a woman marries a man and, and uh, the man dies because it's an agrarian-based society so that the woman will not be left destitute, the brother-in-law must marry her so that she can have children, so that the land could be given on. So there's this woman, and she has seven husbands, all brothers, and you'd think by the fourth time the brother would say, I'm not marrying her, but at any rate... <laughs> All seven marry, and, um, and the question is, okay, you say that there's a life after this life. Well, who's, whose wife is she going to be? I wonder if they're taking bets. I bet, I bet he says number three. No, I think he'll say number five. Well, they're just waiting for him to say something, and if he says number four, then they'll be able to jump on him, and he'll, they'll say, well, how about number two? Why not number two? Why not number six? And so Jesus responds by saying three things that are absolutely revolutionary. And it silences the Sadducees. In fact, from this point on in Jesus' life, they leave him alone. The first thing he says is in verse 12. He says, aren't you wrong because you don't know scripture? You should check how many times Jesus says during his ministry, you got it all wrong because you don't know the Bible. You don't know the scriptures. In fact, just a couple of weeks after this, uh, after his resurrection, there are two people walking on a road to Emmaus. You know the story, and they're all depressed because Jesus has died. And, And you remember what he says? He says, you know, you guys, you need to know the Bible. You need to know scripture. But it's interesting what Jesus does here when he says you don't know the Bible. Rather than taking him to the classic passages in the Old Testament that talk about life after death, like Job, Psalms, Daniel, Isaiah. He says, well, you brought up Moses and you only take the first five books 
Let's go to Moses and see what Moses says. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The implications here are very, very easy to get. You don't say you are currently in a relationship with somebody if that person is dead, right? I mean, right now, Karen will say, I am Shelton's wife. But if I pass away before she does, she's not going to say, I am Shelton's wife. She's going to say, I was Shelton's wife because I'm dead. Jesus asks them, why do you think God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when these people have been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years? It must be <laughs> that they're still alive. That's the type of relationship. He, he has relationships with people who are alive. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Just a quick note here before we move to number two. The most important truth that the greatest people who have ever lived hang on to is the idea that life goes on beyond this reality and that God is there waiting. Many of us know about Job, the patience of Job. What kept Job going? He tells you in chapter 19 of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. What a man Job was. But there was never really a man ever like David. Ever. Some of you play instruments, right? Some of us play instruments, fiddle around. When David played his instruments, demons fled. So he, he I, I, that's never happened to me when I played my guitar. Uh, demons haven't. Whatever we do, yeah, he's he's better at. Some of us are jocks. You know, we we played basketball. Um, can you imagine? There's not a story that we could tell that David wouldn't embarrass us. Sitting around the locker room talking about, yeah, I had 42 points, our championship game. Last second shot went in from 20 feet. We won. I can see David in the locker room sitting there and say, well, one day I was watching my sheep and a bear came out of the woods. So I killed the bear with my hands. And, and then there was this guy, this dude that was nine feet tall. And I went and I fought him. I killed him. I chopped off his head. I lifted up his head and an entire army fled. Do you want to stick with your 42 points? <laughs> <laughs> Some of us like to write. We fancy ourselves great poets or whatever. Can you imagine David saying, well, I was watching my sheep one day and I said, I, th I think I'll write a little poem. I think I'll start with, the Lord is my shepherd. You think that'll stick? <laughs> no matter what we do, he's better at. Can I tell you something about David? The thing 
that David clung to more than anything else is found in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. How about that great psalm he wrote? How did that end? Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord not for 60 years or 90 years, forever. What is it that motivated David? It's this love that God has given to him so much so that this perfect God that didn't need anything says, I'm going to make you my daughter. I'm going to make you my son. What motivates you? Why are you here this morning? You know, God cares about motivations. He says, beware, don't do your practice or don't practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen. Most of us would think, you know, God should just be happy that I'm here this morning. This is July 4th weekend, right? And here I am. He cares about our motives. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why different people follow God. Some of people are afraid of God. What you sow, you reap. The wages of sin is death. I said this prayer. I better follow up on my prayer. But the primary motive for David was this living, loving, eternal relationship that was going to go on forever. I fear oftentimes our motives are out of order. Can I give you an example of this? There are a lot of reasons that I remain married to Karen and I remain faithful to Karen. There's a whole lot of reasons why that's the case. First of all, I couldn't do any better. I mean, that's, that's you know, I got her when she was young. Yeah. Asked her to marry me on our first date. I got her. I, I couldn't do that again. I can't do any better. I, I did say I do, and I will for the rest of my life love you. Um, but the greatest motive, of course, for me to remain married and faithful to Karen is I'm absolutely madly in love with her. And the best part of my day, we're going to get to marriage here in a second. The best part of my day is coming home to Karen. Brad teases me. I outpunted my coverage when Karen said yes to me. Um, but so that we can all be honest with each other here this morning, and Karen and I are pretty open and honest about this, it hasn't always been this way in our marriage. The first years of our marriage actually were very, very difficult. We didn't know each other very well. And in my sinfulness and immaturity, I had expectations that were way up here that I kept waiting for her to meet. And some of those weeks and months and years were absolutely difficult to stay together. And the primary motive for us staying together during some of those months and years was not my love for her. On our wedding day, in fact, our wedding day was the last day that my family was together. Almost immediately after our wedding, my parents' marriage of 37 years imploded a nasty divorce. They never spoke to each other again. 
And I thought to myself when we were going through troubles, you know, if I, if I walk away from this marriage, you know, all my siblings, we're already in crisis here. All of my siblings are going to say, oh, there's nothing to, to marriage at all. I mean, if that happens to mom and dad and maybe some of my siblings looked up to me and if that happens to Shelton, well, there's... So maybe I should just stay in this marriage, you know, so that I don't make even a greater mess of the family than, than it already is. And then 10 months after our marriage, almost 10 months to the day, um, our son was born. Our only child was born. And then I started to think, well, if I walk away from this marriage, I'm also going to be walking away from children, and this is going to absolutely damage him. But while those secondary motives kept us together and very are very important... What, what do you think Karen would think if I said, well, Karen, I said I do, so I'll stay. I don't, I don't want to damage our son, so I'll stay. I, I don't think she'd like that very much. Rather than the way that it is, you are the sweetie pie of the universe. You are, you, you're, you're what I think of during the day. I can't wait to come home to you. What God is telling the Sadducees here is look at this God that you have put in a box. He's a God that so loved this world that he has sent his son. And he wants this relationship with you. Not for 60 or 70 years, but for eternity. Let me hurry on to number two. The second thing that Jesus says in response to this question is that it's in verse 24. You can underline this or you can circle it. He says, here's the problem. You got a bunch of pea brains. You don't know the power of God. You see, our ideas of heaven, for the most part, Freud was correct here. Our ideas of heaven, for the most part, are wish fulfillments. We kind of imagine what a really good heaven would be like, and then we say heaven is like that. But heaven is not our invention, it's God's home. What happens when people invent heaven? I can tell you what happens. Read the Mahayana Buddhists. Read the Hindus. Read the Mormons. Read the Muslims. When we invent heaven, it's this place of incredible happiness in marriage. More sex than you can ever imagine. Maybe even more than one wife. Maybe four wives. Maybe five. It's this place of eternal happiness. And why is there heaven that way? It's because these are the things that give us the greatest joy in this reality. Now, some of you are not in happy marriages. I understand that. But for those that are in happy marriages, we cannot... This is the saddest portion of Scripture for me. I tease Karen. This is her best portion of Scripture, that there is no marriage beyond this life. But for me, this is extremely sad. Because we grow up thinking, those of you that are single here, we grow up thinking that there's somebody out there who's absolutely going to make us happy. I mean, if you are dating, right? If you're dating, and some of you can think back to when you were dating, 
Like the worst thing to hear was, I just want to be friends. Have you ever heard that? I just want to be friends. Not me. I want to be more than friends. I'm looking for a lifetime partner who's going to make me happy, who's going to fulfill my life. And I have to tell you that apart from my relationship with Christ, the greatest source of happiness in my life is Karen. I want to be married to her forever. Like Mike, my job takes me to Asia quite a bit. I hate to be gone. I hate to be gone from Karen. A couple weeks ago, she went down to California, and she there's a brilliant new uh, novel written um, by Anthony Doerr called All the Light We Cannot See, and she, she read that novel, and I thought, well, since she's reading that novel, I'll read that novel as well, and we came back together, and we... Uh, we talked about the characters in that novel. Literature is just, just great. And we were talking to uh, how, how much we enjoyed this, this beautiful fiction book, All the Light We Cannot See. And then the next night, I had a YouTube binge, and I brought out the best, you know, of live 70s music that are on YouTube, you know, Jefferson Airplane, Brampton, the classics, you know. Uh, ended up with a bit of Bon Iver. Christ is telling us here, I've got something better for you than an eternal marriage to your spouse. You can't imagine it. You can't conceive of that reality. But God says, I'm making a place that the best marriage on earth will be like a raindrop in an ocean of joy. Like a piece of sawdust compared to all the forests on the planet. Like a dewdrop compared to all the atomic bombs. You can't conceive of that because your minds can't see another reality, but that's what the reality is. And then this final thing that Jesus says to the Sadducees, and it may not have stood out to you. In fact, when I was reading this passage over and over. It didn't come out to me until about the third or fourth time. And that is, Jesus answers this question sandwiched between two comments. The first is in verse 24. He begins by saying, are you not in error? And if you like the original Greek, what he's saying there is, you're just really wrong here. You're just wrong. But look how he ends in verse number 27. You are badly mistaken. Jesus is emphasizing in his response, you guys have swung and you've missed. This is not the way that it is at all. Why was Jesus so adamant in saying, you guys have really been wrong here? I think it's because we know that by default, each of us are looking for something to cling to in this life to give us happiness to, to get our identity from. We build our lives around it so that life is more than just a tale told by an idiot. God's given us a lot of gifts, but they are never meant to be our ultimate hope. Even our marriages are not to be our ultimate hope. 
Karen and I notice as we get older and we meet other people how rare it is listen young people and listen old people how rare it is to find people in marriages that have gone on for on for years and years who are actually brilliantly happy in those marriages for the most part it has just become a detente just I said I do and so I'm here and as people get older they become meaner and more cynical and angrier can I tell you why it's because people have thought this is what's going to make me happy my career my wife my children and as they get older they say nope that wasn't it and they're running out of time to figure out what it is. And so Jesus wants them to know, you've got to know it's more than this reality. I have come so that people could live a life that was absolutely full and abundant. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. As Jesus was getting ready for his own death, you ought to read, starting in John chapter 11, those, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Some of us are getting close to death as well. As Jesus was getting closer to his own death, it's amazing how much he began speaking about life beyond this reality. To Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. To his disciples, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am, there you may be forever. To Philip, who was afraid of dying, Jesus said, because I live, you will also live. To Thomas, who had all these questions, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then just before he went to the cross, he said to his own father, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I need to bring this to a close. I could go on and on. I grew up in the highlands of the Philippines. I spent my first 18 years there. I was born there and spent my first 18 years. There is a legend, in fact, you can do a Wikipedia about the city of Baguio, that this was one of the last stands that the Japanese made during World War II was up in my city of Baguio. And there was a Japanese general named Yamashita. And the legend goes that Yamashita took all the gold of the Japanese empire in Southeast Asia, that's a lot of gold, and brought it up to Baguio and hid it in a cave. People are still looking for it. When I was seven years old, I had some friends who were a little bit older than me said, 
that came to me and said, we've found Yamashita's cave. I said, are you serious? They said, yeah, we found it. So they, they took me up to this place that was just, it was jungle. Uh, you have to go up to the city of Baguio. It's in the highlands, just roots and vines everywhere. They say, it's in there. We know that it's in there, but we can't get to it because of all, all these trees. And so, you know, what do 12-year-olds do? They say, well, let's start a fire. And we'll burn just the front of this area, and uh, then we can get into the cave. So they started a fire. And that fire got out of control. It was like all of Bogus Basin being on fire. I lived about half a mile from there, so I ran home once the fire was out of control. This is the truth. This is what a seven-year-old does. And I went home, and I found a cup like this, and I filled it with water, and I ran back to the fire, and... And I tried to put out the fire. You know, you know what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees? This is your understanding of the universe compared to this huge blaze. And my father's greater than what you think. You, you think you have a great... And listen, it, we here at All Saints, we are all about this world being redeemed. We're not about just thinking about heaven. We think that God has made this physical place for us to enjoy and to, uh, to renew. But it is nothing compared to being with him forever. You know, if you're going to start a religion, you don't say that there's not going to be any marriage in heaven because all of you who are single here, you're like, maybe I struck out in this life, but over there I'm going to have a, a great marriage. And those of us that are in happy marriages, we're like, you don't start it out, but Jesus is telling the truth. What is it that moves you? What is it that you live for? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia and the Silver Chair, we find that uh, there's this girl named Jill, and she's like in this desert, and she's very, very thirsty. You guys know this story. And uh, there's a little stream where she can quench her thirst, but between her and the stream, there's this lion. Aslan, the Christ figure. Are you not thirsty, said Aslan. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. But Aslan would not move. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving Jill nearly crazy. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no such promise, said the lion. Jill was thirsty, so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer to Aslan. Do you eat girls, she said. <laughs> I have swallowed up, consumed girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said Aslan. And he didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if it, it were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
the lion said, there is no other stream. Christ, our hope today and forever. Will you join us? Will you eat with us? Will you drink with us? The end of the world is going to be a wedding, a marriage feast that we will all participate in if we are in Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what kind of love is it that you who had everything and needed absolutely nothing made yourself a carpenter and spoke these wonderful words that we can live and die by, that we can live with you forever. For those of us who are thirsty and hungry today, we pray you would feed us here at this table because we pray through our our champion, our lion, the King of Judah, Jesus Christ. Amen.